Hi, this is Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. I'm pleased to read to you my Dvar Torah for this week, Parshat Noach. The title is Covenant. The Torah inherited a Mesopotamian cultural consensus that a great deluge had wiped out almost all of humanity. In the Gilgamesh epic, for example, the gods Anu and Enil inflict this catastrophic experience arbitrarily as a display of their power. But later they defend their actions both as deserved punishment and designed to curb population growth. According to the older Mesopotamian epic, Atrahasis, Enlil and the gods are troubled by the rapid growth of human population and defended by the noisy, raucous human behaviors. They use the flood and then shorten lifespan to drastically reduce human presence on earth. Rearticulated through the Torah's revelation, however, the flood is explained as inflicted because of widespread human wickedness, especially violence and oppression. God, who wanted earth to be a living paradise of justice and peace, is so disappointed and angered as to decide to undo the initial creation with the flood of watery chaos and then try again. The Lord determined to wipe out the corrupt human race and renew humanity, building it on righteous Noah and his family. But the crucial departure and revolutionary moral path of the Torah is expressed in the day after the flood, which may well be the most transformative religious moment in Judaism's history. God pledges never to inflict such a catastrophe again. Attributing a cataclysmic flood to willful action by God would define the Lord as a perfectionist who cannot tolerate the flawed and wayward human nature acting out badly and so rejects the world and starts again. Alternatively, such a flood would reveal God as a punitive ruler who ruthlessly wipes out those who disobey any divine instruction and forces them to be good. Instead, the Torah reveals that God is a loving Lord who is deeply distressed at the sign of widespread devastation and death. To wipe out people for the sin of disobedience and violence is so coercive that even if people do the right action thereafter, there is no dignity or genuine morality in their behaviors. A loving God wants people to be good out of free will and love of others. Therefore, God permanently renounces the threat of inflicting catastrophe. All-powerful but loving God self-limits and offers humanity a covenant or partnership. In this committed partnership of love, humans will join with the divine in building a better world and filling it with life. But they will do so out of free choice and doing their best, not out of terrorized submission to divine dictates. In the covenant, there is full allowance for human weakness in the form of lower, compromised expectations at least along the way to the final goal. Even bad behaviors are provided for by mechanisms of repentance, milder punishments, 
and divine forgiveness. God still wants creation and society to be perfected. However, God loves humans and wants them to mature and become fully images of God. That is, independent creatures who are infinitely valuable, equal, and unique. God wants humans to live lives of dignity and creativity in partnership. That is more important than humans building God's desired paradise while living lives of robotic conformity to divine instructions. In entering covenant, omnipotent God self-limits out of love to allow humans their freedom and the chance to grow into full dignity. How? First, God establishes the natural order as independent, an irrevocable process, never to cease or be disrupted. See Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. The Talmud explains, Olam kemin hago noheg, the world follows its order, its custom. That's Avodah Zarah, the tractate, page 54b. The objectivity of the natural order means that nature will not differentiate between stolen or honestly acquired seeds. Both will germinate. The sperm of adulterous intercourse can conceive a child just as much as sperm emitted in moral or legal sexual relations. Nature will not hound or punish those doing evil. In God's world, humans freely choose to do good or bad. By choosing to do good, humans exercise and earn their freedom. This means that God upholds human freedom with all the risks of bad behavior ahead of obedience or guaranteed and preferred outcomes. The divine self-limit means that humans must pick up a slack in creating life and repairing the world. Rather than confer a paradise by miracles, God binds God's self to depend on human actions to complete the world. By upholding the human role and making the divinely desired outcomes dependent upon human behavior, God enables human freedom. And people must participate in their own liberation, or they remain imbued with a slave mentality. If paradise is simply bestowed, humans are likely to remain dependent, or maybe even like spoiled children, rather than repair their own world and become mature masters of their own fate. The covenant mechanism protects against the two most widespread pathologies that flow from the human encounter with God. One is to neglect this world or even allow it to rot and instead pray for God to upgrade it miraculously. Thus religion became, in Marx's critique, the opiate of the masses, which enabled an unjust status quo to persist. Close quote. The other is to turn to God and to ritual life in order to escape from this world with its challenges and burdens and into a timeless, perfect heavenly realm. The covenant tells humans that they have a companion or partner or helper, but they must do their share. They must fulfill their commitment by creating life and doing good in this mortal realm. Our Parsha illustrates 
the covenant's method of working for tikkun olam, the repair of the world. Out of deference to human needs and nature, society takes small and compromised steps toward the ultimate goal. The ideal diet of the Torah is vegetarianism. No creature should live by taking the life of other creatures. In the Garden of Eden, all living animals, including humans, were vegetarian. See Genesis 1, verses 29-30. However, after the flood, allowing for human hunting for food and human need for protein, permission is given to eat meat. See Genesis 9, verse 3. The covenantal goal of a final peaceful world is upheld, nevertheless, by restricting the meat-eating. All humans are prohibited from eating blood of the animal. Blood is seen as the carrier of life, see Leviticus 17.11. The prohibition is a reminder that the ideal remains not to take another life, not consuming blood is humanity's acknowledgement. Not consuming blood is humanity's acknowledgement that it is violating the sanctity of life out of necessity and established culture. The prohibition of blood goads people to try to ultimately reach the vegetarian ideal. It is noteworthy that Noah's covenant includes a warning not to shed the blood of humans. See Genesis chapter 9, verses 5-6. This is an acknowledgement that compromising with nature and culture by permitting the killing of animals raises the risk of humans acting out their hunting instincts by killing humans. There is an implied moral risk in every compromise of the ideal, and there is a price in accommodating human beings and the status quo. Our Parsha concludes this account by reminding us of the goal of this partnership. It is to fill the world with life and so upgrade the world as to enable people to live abundantly, not constrained, not deprived, not reduced, but rooted and flourishing lives. See Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. And now a postscript. The covenant with Noah is a universal covenant with all of humanity and other living creatures. See Genesis chapter 9. This covenant has not received that much attention in Jewish tradition, certainly not as much as the particular Jewish covenants, i.e. with Abraham or at Sinai or on the plains of Moab at the end of Moses' life. See Deuteronomy 29 and 30. The Noahide covenant supplies the model in the Torah of covenantal process, such as an ideal goal, initial lowered expectations or compromise in actions, upholding the ideal through ongoing restrictions, provision to minimize the inevitable negative side effects and costs of compromises. It combines this with an unredeemed status quo and a sign marker of the covenant. In our parsha, the parsha gives a sign of the universal covenant, the rainbow, Genesis 9, 12 through 17. This model shapes our understanding of all the later laws in the book of the covenant, see Exodus chapters 21 and 23, and the rest of the Torah. 
I believe that all the subsequent covenants, not just with the Jewish people, but I argue those made with other non-Jewish covenantal communities as well, are based on and draw authority from this Noahide covenant. I call on the prophet Isaiah to back up this view. When the exiled Jews returned from Babylonia, they were racked with religious concerns. Maybe God had rejected the covenant with Israel and therefore allowed the destruction of the first temple and the exile of Jewry. Isaiah assured them that this was not so. He tells them, just as God's covenantal pledge not to allow another deluge was self-evidently unbroken, it was operating and irrevocable, so they should be assured that God's covenant with Israel would never be withdrawn. See Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10. In other words, the manifest validity of the Noahide covenant and the ongoing natural process is our assurance that our Jewish particular covenant is ongoing and eternal.